open your Bibles with me this morning to the small epistle of Jude. We started going through Jude last week, and we got through verse 11, so we'll pick up in verse 12 this week. We know that this short letter was penned by Jude, a.k.a. Judas, the half-brother of Jesus, not Judas Iscariot, different Judases. We also know that James, author of James in our Bibles, is also the brother of Jude. So James and Jude, both half-brothers of Jesus Christ. We know that both of those guys, James and Jude, came to the knowledge that Jesus was the Son of God after his resurrection. They had spent years and years with him growing up. Imagine growing up with Jesus. And I just can't fathom that. You tell your parents, man, Jesus is acting up. He made me do it. What are they going to say to you? There's nothing they can say about that. So I imagine that James and Jude both had very unique perspectives when it comes to Jesus. We saw last week um, that Jude wanted to write about our common salvation, but the Holy Spirit prompted him instead to exhort Christians everywhere to contend earnestly for the faith, and not just any faith, but the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. That is our faith in Jesus Christ. We saw Jude go through a list of examples of judgment. He used the Old Testament to point Jews and Christians alike towards the new Messiah. He said, well, let's go through them real quick. He used the people of Israel as they came out of the land of Egypt. They came to the promised land. They saw giants in the land and they were afraid. They did not believe. And because of that, God let that generation die out in the wilderness because of unbelief. The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains in darkness. These angels who sinned in Genesis 6 are reserved for judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah was judged. These cities were judged, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. These are all ways that we can identify these false teachers that Jude is warning us about. Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil over the body of Moses, did not himself bring a reviling accusation against Satan, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. He put the Lord between him and Satan. These speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts. In these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now he lays out three Old Testament examples of ways. I'm going to call them that. The way of Cain. Cain for all intents and purposes, created his own religion. He decided how he wanted to come to God. That is the way of Cain, and that's no good. That is what these false teachers are doing. They have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. These false teachers, we see them with 
giant pockets. Uh, they're floating around on their yachts. Uh, we see the money that they make. They have used what gifts they've been given for profit, and that is the error of Balaam. They have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Um, Korah wanted more than what the Lord had designated him to be. Korah was an attendant at the tabernacle. He wanted to be a sacrificing priest. He wanted more than what God had ordained. And that very fast and furious recap brings us to verse 12, where we'll start this morning. Verse 12 reads, These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now, we get some word pictures here from Jude, and these are all relating to these false teachers that he's been talking about up to this point. He says, these, referring to the false teachers, are spots in your love feasts. These love feasts, or agape feasts, were the potlucks of this day. The church back then met in homes. They were home fellowships, and they would have these meals as a type of fellowship, like we're doing today with our burgers and dogs. He says they are spots in your love feasts. Now, this word spots is interesting because different translations translate this word differently. Okay, so in some, you may have these are hidden rocks in your love feasts. And some, you may say these are spots in your love feasts. The different translations don't change the meaning of the passage, but this is where it comes from. And both of these words in Greek are very similar. We see in 2 Peter 2, 13 and 14, Peter uses the word for spots. He says they are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. So Peter is also talking about false teachers here. And he uses the verbiage, they are spots and blemishes, even connecting them to feasts. But in Homer's works, uh, the Odyssey, I believe it was, this same word is translated as hidden rocks and referring to hidden rocks in the sea that sailors would need to be wary of. And this can also work. They are hidden rocks in your love feasts. The insinuation is, with both of these words, um, spots and blemishes, you know, and hidden rocks that could potentially cause harm, the insinuation is that we need to watch out for these guys. And they're not always clear. They don't always make themselves apparent to you. So these are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear. Now, in this time in the church, these love feasts were highly connected to the Lord's Supper. 
to communion. So when you take part in one of these feasts without reverence, we know that we are going to be judged for that. While they feast with you without fear, that is, they have no reverence in what they're doing. Serving only themselves. Like Korah and his rebellion, they are not content with where God has placed them. They're self-serving and they care little for others. Our next word picture, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds. They're clouds without water. What good is that? What good is a cloud if it doesn't carry water? From a cloud, we expect refreshing rain, right? But if it doesn't carry water, that expectation is going to be unmet. We're not going to get the fruit from the cloud, that rain. Carried about by the winds. And we can compare this phrase to Ephesians 4.14. Now, this is written by Paul, and it reads that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Now, together, these passages from Jude and Ephesians are talking about those who are carried by any wind of doctrine off of the sound path of good, healthy doctrine. They have nothing keeping them rooted in healthy doctrine. And that's why they can be blown off course. Clouds without water carried about by the winds. This carried about by the winds is just insinuating that they're off the beaten path. Um, I should say they're off the narrow path. Um, The beaten path is well-traveled. And many are those who find the way to destruction but the narrow path is the one that we are on. We don't want to be one of these carried about by the winds. He says, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Not only are they fruitless, but they're rootless. That's a way you can remember this. Fruitless and rootless. He says, late autumn trees without fruit. So these so-called ministers of God would be expected to yield spiritual fruit for the benefit of God's flock if they are truly leaders. But even during the time of the year that a tree would be expected to bear its fruit, they come up lacking. You expect to see fruit that you do not find. Twice dead, pulled up by the roots. So this tree is not only... Um, It has not only suffered the apparent death of winter, they go into a dormant state, but it suffered a real death, twice dead. These men were dead once in their sin and trespass, just like each one of us. And now they are dead again by the proofs of their hypocrisy. Thus, the only thing that remains to do is to pluck them up by their roots. They're twice dead, 
pulled up by the roots, fruitless and rootless. 13, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Raging waves are a terror to sailors, just like those hidden rocks that we talked about. Raging waves can sink a boat. They can leave you stranded on the ocean. We know Paul knows about that well. The noise of these waves is overwhelming. You know, and the imagery here, I think, is interesting. Because you have these waves. If you've ever heard huge raging waves, it, they're deafening. They don't come in silently. But they are loud. Raging waves of the sea. The noise is overwhelming. And it drowns out the useful voices. When these false teachers come in to the church, they often can have the effect of drowning out voices who are trying to hold them back from committing these mistakes. They drown out the useful voices of sound doctrine. And the danger ceases when the sailor makes port. They're safe from the waves, but the noise continues to beat on the shore. He says, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now, this little word picture, I think, has a couple of parts. These wandering stars can be referring to comets. We know comets burn brightly for just a few seconds, and then they fade into darkness. He says that for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So he could be referring to a comet where they burn brightly for a short period of time and then are dark uh, perpetually. These false teachers may shine for a fleeting moment, but then they're gone. And it's interesting that Jude mentioned the angels who sinned were reserved in everlasting chains under darkness. The false teachers are reserved It says here, for the blackness of darkness forever. So a similar condemnation. This wandering stars word picture could also mean um, a navigating star that doesn't stand still in the sky. We know that back then and even today, stars are very important in navigation. You got to look up into the sky and you can figure out where you are on this ball of dirt. So if you have a wandering star, one that's not still, how can you plot a course off of it? It gives you false directions. It gives you a false sense that you're headed in the correct direction. And that could also be what he's talking about. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch The seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Those are very straightforward words and very powerful. 
Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also. So Enoch, it says here, and also in genealogies that we have, I point you to Genesis 5. We know that Enoch was the seventh from Adam. So we have Adam and Eve. They begot Seth. Seth begot Enosh. Enosh begot Kenan. Kenan begot Mahalalel. Mahalalel begot Jared. Jared begot Enoch. Okay, so we have Enoch as the seventh from Adam. And then from Enoch comes Methuselah. From Methuselah, Lamech. From Lamech, Noah. And so we see this, these patriarchs, as they're called, laid out uh, from Adam to Noah. Genesis 5.24 tells us that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch was, only, was one of only two men in Scripture who did not suffer a physical death, but was translated by God. It says that God took him. Now, the name of Enoch's son, Methuselah, means dying he shall send. And this is in reference to the flood of Noah's day. Enoch had the understanding as he named his son that at the end of Methuselah's life, God would send a great judgment on the world. Um, This is interesting. And it's kind of funny to think about. You think about Enoch being a dad to this kid named Dying He Shall Send every time he fell down and scraped his knee on a rock, Enoch would wince a little. You know, ooh, is it time? And you see a car whizzing by on the highway. Hope he doesn't come hit us. Maybe not a car, but you get the point. Okay, so dying he shall sin. Interesting to note that this is also a picture in Methuselah of the long-suffering of God. Methuselah is the oldest person recorded in Scripture. God waits for us, but he does not wait forever. The year that Methuselah died is the year that God sent the great deluge, the flood of Noah. prophesied about these men also. So Enoch also prophesied about the false teachers who in Jude's day were in the church and are still in the church. Jude is again speaking of the judgment that will come on to these deceivers, and he uses Enoch to make this point. Enoch lived his life before the flood, the antediluvian period, which means that his prophecy of Jesus's second coming here, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his saints, dates back pre-flood. And in fact, this prophecy comes even before Enoch. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God prophesied that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Um, And we know that this prophecy 
will be fulfilled in its finality when Jesus comes to set up his kingdom on earth. Um, The seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Notice how many times the word ungodly is used in this quote from Enoch. Words like ungodly have been all but outlawed in our time and our society. But God draws very, very clear lines in the sand. We are either with him or we are against him. There is light and there is dark. Um, God knows nothing of outlawing godly and ungodly. He says, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. God has judged the world before. And he will judge the world again. And this time, it will be a personal judgment and a total judgment. The word all is repeated four times in this small quote. The word translated convict in the New King James also means convince. You'll find it here in verse 15 to execute judgment on all, to convict or convince all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds. Our society is working overtime to convince people that what they are doing and saying is not wrong. Truth is relative. Morality is relative. We know in the kingdoms of the Old Testament that the people did what they saw as right in their own eyes, and that led to destruction. Truth and morality is not relative, but the creator gets to determine what is moral and what is true. And he has done that, and he's given it to us in his word. We see mockers of God and those who outright deny him. Sure, they will be convicted, but they will also be convinced that their deeds were in fact ungodly all along. And there will be no doubt who's in charge when Jesus comes to set up his kingdom. Um, That is for sure. The world we live in is just a catalyst for what will be happening soon. Uh, Things are going to get tougher and tougher, and truly they will be more difficult than we can imagine. Um, I believe and I pray that the church, the salt of the earth, won't be here when things get as tough as they're going to get. But right now, we are the salt of the earth. The church is currently acting as a preservative on the world. 
And you can look around in the news, uh, look around wherever you'd like, and you can see things falling apart. Um, it, the world is going to heck in a handbasket. Um, it's not a surprise to anyone. But the church is a preservative. We are the ones holding everything together currently. Um, when we are taken out of the world, this preserving influence that the church exerts on the world will no longer be here. And things will start moving very, very quickly in a poor direction. But today, we're here. And this means that God's grace is still extended to humanity. We still have a chance. But there will be a time when it is too late. Whether you pass away uh, into eternity with God, or we're all taken up, you go to see him that way. Either way, our time here is short. That is a fact. Do not wait to make Jesus the Lord of your life because everyone will acknowledge his majesty at a certain point in the future. When everyone acknowledges his lordship, his majesty, and his power, I want to be on the correct side of that. Either you will realize that you were with him all along, we've made it, or you will realize, man, I made a huge mistake. And at his name, every knee will bow. We don't want to be on the opposing side when that happens. Verse 16, these are grumblers complainers, walking according to their own lusts, that they mouth great and swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. These are still referring to the false teachers. It says they are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. So their flesh is telling them what to do, where to go. Um, they listen to their flesh, and they mouth great swelling words. Peter wrote that these men speak great swelling words of emptiness. Uh, in his second epistle, these words are like cotton candy to the hearers. If you think about cotton candy, you know, it just dissolves in your mouth. There's no substance to it may give you a quick sugar high, um, and that's exactly what these false teachings do. They give you a quick shot of adrenaline, you know, a spiritual high, and then there's nothing of substance after that. Cotton candy, when you make it, it's all big and fluffy. It's all swelled up. But when you introduce it to your tongue, to your saliva, it's gone almost instantaneously. And if you ever see a, a raccoon try to eat cotton candy, it's pretty funny because they wash their, their food off first. So he just dips it in the lake and it's gone. That's, that's funny. Just making sure y'all are still with me. Cotton candy words. Jude says that they, they mouth great swelling words. 
they're here for a second, they get us high, but they're gone immediately. Flattering people to gain advantage. You probably know coworkers or someone else in your life that butters up the boss to get done what they want done. You know, they can talk a few smooth words to the boss, get a promotion, or get the project approved, you know, whatever it may be. Um, these people, uh, like your coworkers, will flatter people to gain advantage, uh, a worldly advantage. The whole world system works that way. And we see it in academia, uh, higher education. We see it in the workplace. Right? You butter up the right person. You make them like you, even if you're spouting lies. And you get the position that you want. That's how the world works. And now Jude says, but you, beloved, he draws a contrast between flattering people to gain advantage and you, beloved. Jude is saying to us, but I don't want you to be like them. And he knows that we're not if we are in Christ. Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the words which were spoken before. This is the first command in the book of Jude. Um, he's come all this way without giving any commands. And now here, finally, he's telling us, remember the words which were spoken before. He says, by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He points to their authority on the last days. He knows that they do hold authority. And this actually seems to be a reference to the Apostle Peter's writing. Um, we're referencing 2 Peter almost every verse through Jude. Um, so I'd encourage you to go read 2 Peter, especially chapter 3, if you have time. It all relates. He's talking about false teachers as well. In 2 Peter 3, 1 through 5, Peter writes, Beloved, I now write to you in this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So we see these scoffers and mockers using the principle of uniformitarianism to explain away the need for a creator, for God. They say in Peter, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, since a long, long time ago, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. This 
undirected evolution. Uniformitarianism. Everything continues as it was. This is their attempt to escape judgment from, as Enoch said, their ungodly ways. If you can explain away a creator, you can explain away um, your need to account for your behavior. If we are all animals just trying to survive to the next generation, morality is no longer viable. There's no such thing as morals as long as you survive. Now, Peter describes these men, but Jude gives us insight into their motivations. In verse 19, he says, these are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. They cause divisions. This is the goal of these false teachers. They want to weasel into the church and split us apart from each other. A house divided does not stand. Not having the spirit. These people are not part of the body of Christ. They do not have the Holy Spirit. Now, this word sensual does not mean um, sexual in any way. That's not the insinuation there. The insinuation is the natural man. And this word literally means natural or carnal. And that's exactly how Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He writes, but the natural man, same word, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So we see a sharp contrast between the natural man and the man who has the Spirit. Our entire lives, up until the point that we're saved and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, we come to know our world by our five senses. We touch, taste, smell, hear, and see things all around us. And that is how we learn, how we discern things. Um, it's only by our natural senses. But something happens when we receive the Holy Spirit. He gives us something that it was foreign to us up until that point. We call this discernment. The Holy Spirit gives us discernment, and this is an inkling. John wrote that we have an anointing from the Holy Spirit, and we know all things. This is something that we can't really explain using our five senses, um, but the Spirit gives us more insight into spiritual things. But the natural man does not have this same insight. And uh, we also read in John's epistles that the world speaks a different language altogether than we do as believers. There's a different language spoken. The things that we can understand, they can't understand until they are born again 
until they have this spirit. But Jude says that these are sensual, natural, or carnal persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. So we know that they are not of us. John uh, wrote a confusing sentence uh, that means we can know people were never of us because they went out from us. That's what he's saying. If someone has gone out from the church, and Jude would say if they did not have the Spirit, we know that they were never of us to begin with. Verse 20, but you, beloved. And again, there is this contrast between those who don't have the Spirit and you, beloved. Jude is writing to Christians who do have the Holy Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Now, in the beginning of the letter, Jude said that he was writing to encourage us to contend earnestly for the faith. He's now telling us how we ought to do that. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Keep yourselves in the love of God. This is not keep God loving you. This is not keep yourself saved. We know that Jesus preserves us in in himself, in him and for him. We saw that in the beginning of Jude's letter. We certainly can't keep ourselves saved. We certainly do not preserve ourselves. But there are things that we can do to keep ourselves in communion with God, to keep ourselves in the love of God. And Jude gives us certain things we can do. So let's look at these. In verse 20, he says, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Now this is talking very specifically about our faith in Jesus Christ. Your most holy faith. And this is where we should build ourselves up in Jesus. In verse 4, at the beginning of this letter, Jude warns about those who deny our Lord Jesus Christ. So building up our faith in him is one way that we can keep ourselves in the love of God. Jesus should be our foundation, our cornerstone. The second way uh, we can keep ourselves in communion with God is praying in the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean? Well, simply put, our prayers should be directed by the Holy Spirit. The first thing we may think of when we hear praying in the Holy Spirit is praying in unknown tongues. And while this can be a working of the Holy Spirit, um, this is only one way that we can pray in the Spirit. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 14 and 15, 
For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with understanding. So while we may pray in tongues during our personal times of devotion, we can also pray in the spirit while understanding what we say. And both are fruitful, and both are good for a Christian. Now, many of our prayers can be directed by our own needs, our desires, and even directed by our intellect. But Jude encourages us to let the Holy Spirit direct our prayers. The Spirit can even take over in praying when we don't know what to say. If you found yourself so down and out that you can't physically utter intelligible words when you pray, this is when the Spirit intercedes for us. Romans 8.26 Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf when we don't know what to pray, and this is no doubt praying in the Spirit. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. And then we come to the third and last way that Jude highlights to keep ourselves in communion with God. He says, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. This last way that we stay in communion with God is looking for the return of Jesus. And what a purifying influence this is in the church. We should be living each day as if Jesus could come that day, because he can. We should be expecting his return. We should be expecting ourselves to be gathered to him at any moment, in the twinkling of an eye. I've talked about uh, a mother preparing for her baby, going into nesting mode. She's expecting something to change in her life. She's expecting a baby. So what does she do? She goes around and cleans the house. She gets her husband to put up the crib. You know, she prepares. This is exactly what the church, what what each one of us should be doing as we eagerly await the return of Christ. We should be preparing for his coming. We should be taking note of things in our heart that are not suitable for him. Take those things out. Chunk them as far as you can. We should be preparing for the return of Christ. In a similar way, as a mother prepares for her baby, Summer has prepared to bring a kitten into our home. Um, We went and picked up our little kitten uh, this weekend, and we went to Walmart, and we got a litter box, we got litter, we got everything we needed, food, a watering bowl, toys, scratching pad, everything we would need to take care of this kitten well. 
I encourage us all to look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto. And that means with the end result of eternal life. It points to his coming. Direct your gaze in that direction. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So he says that different people respond to different messages in different ways. On some, have compassion. You know, speak very tenderly to them. Speak in truth, but have compassion. Making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Now, that speaks to a little more uh, caustic or harsh approach. Now, in everything we do, we want to do it with love. But maybe the most loving thing that you can do for this person is instilling fear in them. Think about that. The most loving thing you can do for some people is instilling the fear of God in them. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now Jude is going to break out in a doxology to end his letter. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And he wraps it up there. Jude started his letter by writing to those who are preserved in Jesus Christ. And now he's wrapping it up by glorifying the one that preserves us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I struggle to imagine myself faultless before the presence of his glory. Because I assure you, I'm not faultless. Your wife, your husband, they're not faultless. I hate to break it to you. Maybe you already knew that. (laughs) Hopefully I'm not telling you something new this morning. But in the state that we were born into, we are not faultless. But in order to present us before the presence of his glory, we will need to be faultless. God will not stand for a faulty man. You are either blood-bought, covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb who is slain before the foundation of the world, 
or you are not covered by that blood. You are either faulty or faultless. And if you are in Christ Jesus, if he is preserving you to the end, then you will be presented faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I love that. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And that's how Jude chooses to close his small letter to Christians. And although there were some difficult parts to understand, the message is clear. Why did Jude write this letter? He's encouraging Christians. That's us. He's encouraging us to earnestly contend for the faith. He also warns us of the impending doom for these false teachers. He warns us that, yes, they are among you right now, and they have snuck in unnoticed. They are inviting division. They are inciting division. And these guys you need to watch out for. Contend earnestly for the faith. There will be those who try to throw us off course but we must remain fixed on Jesus. If these false teachers were a wandering star, like we talked about, Jesus is the North Star. He's fixed in space. And we are to fix our eyes on him. If we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we will be pointed in the right direction. We can finish this race that we've started. We can finish well. So keep your eyes fixed on Jesus this week. As we go back into the world, this ugly place that we live in, uh, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus as you seek to know him better. Amen. Let's close our study in a word of prayer. Thank you.